Father, we thank you for this time to continue looking at what your word says. And as we dig into this command for husbands, I pray that you would give all of us men receptive hearts. And it's such a challenge what your word has to say. I pray that by the power of uh, the gospel working in our lives, we could also obey the command. You wouldn't give it to us except that you'd also give us, equip us to um, have what's necessary to obey it. And so we pray for that, Lord, and help us to just have open and receptive hearts to what you want to say to us during this time. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you want to take out your handouts here, instead of turning to the second lesson, just briefly turn back to the first one. I'm going to review. This will be the last time that I review this, but I think it's worth reviewing just a second time now that we've concluded one message. So as we begin, make the decision to part one, focus on your weaknesses more than your spouses. This will be particularly important for the wives as we address the husbands during this message. But just remember, ladies, tomorrow morning we will be addressing you, and you want your husband to be focusing on his own weaknesses. But for this time, while we address your husband, be praying for him and lifting him up and and asking that God will help him be the husband that is described in his word. Second, turn any of those frustrations into prayer. Just briefly mention that. Be praying for your husband if you do find yourself becoming frustrated that he's not more like God's word says he should be. And then third, recognize your marriage is a reflection of your relationship with Christ. Treat our spouses the way we do because of our relationships with Christ. Now, the second message, if you want to turn there, it's called a husband's love. We discussed some of the effects that the fall has on our marriages in our last message, and I concluded you, or I concluded by telling you that the way we can reverse the effects of the fall in our marriages is by obeying the commands that God has given us. We really have a recipe in the scriptures for having marriages that um, God desires. And so we're going to start looking at that first command. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25, a familiar verse. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You notice the word love is used twice to discuss two different relationships, Christ's relationship to the church and husbands' relationships to their wives. And so as husbands, we're commanded to love our wives with that same selfless, sacrificial love with which Christ has loved his church. Christ gave everything for his church, even his own life, laying it down for us. And that's what we as husbands are called to do with our wives. And so this is why there should be an amount of sobriety or heaviness that falls on every man while we read this verse because we recognize how far short all of us fall regarding being to our wives what Christ is to the church. The Greek word for love is agape, which is an unconditional love. So have you ever considered how interesting it is? Does, does, did you guys really love some of those desserts out there in the foyer? Yes. Isn't it interesting that I said you love those desserts and you'll use that same word to say you love your spouse? Or if I said I love wrestling or I love popcorn and I love my wife, you all hope that I love my wife differently than I love wrestling or popcorn, right? And so that's one of the weaknesses in the English language that the Greek didn't have. They had a number of different words for love, whether it's agape, phileo, storge, eros. The word here for agape, it's an unconditional love that loves even when it's not reciprocated. It is a sacrificial love. And that's why when you read verse 25, you do not see a certain word, and it's the word if. You notice the word if is not in this verse. It doesn't say husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. If, if she, which means, gentlemen, our love for our wives 
is not at all conditional on our wives. We are expected or we are commanded to love our wives even if they are unsubmissive, even if they mistreat us, even if they don't return love for us in return, even if they don't respect us. This is what Christ has done for the church and is what we're called to do with our wives. So whenever I'm upset with Katie, which did happen one time like eight years ago, (laughs) that was just a joke. (laughs) So whenever I'm upset with Katie, this is what I need to remind myself that Christ has commanded me to love her regardless of how she has acted toward me or regardless of what she has or hasn't done. Now, since Ephesians 5.25 is the command for husbands, it sort of begs the question, why are there any verses after it, right? If this is the command, why do any verses follow it? The simple answer is verse 25 gives the command, and then the following verses describe what it looks like to obey that command. So let me say that one more time. Verse 25 is the command. The following verses describe what it looks like for a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. None of us want to be bad husbands, but sometimes we don't know what it looks like to be a good husband. And this is interesting if you consider that if you were to ask 100 people, what does it look like for a husband to love his wife, how many different answers do you think you'd get? About 100. And the reason is there are all these different opinions. If you were asked, if you were to ask the world or ask people in the world what it looks like for a husband to love his wife, a worldly person would probably say something like what? Buy her expensive jewelry. Take her to fancy restaurants. Bring her on a exotic trips. Make sure that she lives in a very fancy home and, and give her whatever she wants. That's what it looks like if you're going to be a loving husband. So generally, the world says that loving your wife looks like materialism. Um, so here's an important point that we want to keep in mind as husbands. We can be a complete failure as a husband in the world's eyes while still being pleasing to God. But at the same time, we could also be a very pleasing husband in the world's eyes, but be failing as a husband in God's eyes. Now, what we want is we want to be good husbands in God's eyes, right? And so the question is, what does that look like? The good news, gentlemen, is you don't have to buy your wife a lot of expensive stuff, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) To, (laughs) To be a good husband, no fancy, fancy trips, exotic you know, vacations and so forth, expensive homes. But I will say this. Ken, were you the one who said um, yay to that? (laughs) Well, here's the bad news for us, Ken. The bad news is what God wants is much harder than that. What God wants is much harder than that. It would be much easier to just have the money to buy our wives whatever whatever they want. If you look at verse 26, you can see what it means for husbands to love their wives as God commands. Verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And so this is what it looks like for husbands to love their wives in God's eyes. And this brings us to lesson one. Husbands love their wives by washing them with the word. Husbands love their wives by washing them with the word. Husbands are commanded to sanctify their wives. So this shows all of us. I mean, gentlemen, this is very sobering. This shows all of us being at least partially responsible for the sanctification of our wives. Did my mic go out? Can you guys hear me okay? What? Kind of off. Okay. Well, it just allows me to repeat something that I think is very sobering. Every time that I read it or think it or say it, the gentlemen, we are at least partially responsible for our wives' sanctification. 
We are not completely responsible for our wives' sanctification because they are free moral agents, but we definitely have some part in it. And so if you want to be a husband that pleases God, then you have to be concerned with what your wife is going to look like, and I mean spiritually speaking, when she stands before the Lord someday. We're told how this sanctifying takes place. You can see right there in the verse, it says, through washing by the word of God. So the word of God, it's what washes us, it's what cleanses us. And so if we're going to be responsible with sanctifying our wives, it's going to take place through the word. There are a number of ways for husbands to wash their wives with the word. Here are just a few of them. It's amazing if you think about what our world looks like in the time we live in compared to even a few, not just, I'm not talking thousands of years or centuries ago, even decades ago. Have you ever considered the accessibility we have to the Word of God? You could be driving in your car, and you can have the Word of God on. You can be in your home, and you could have sermons playing that are free, washing over your family. So let's just discuss some of these ways that husbands can be pleasing in God's sight and making sure that they're accomplishing the sanctifying and cleansing work. First, gentlemen, you should be taking your family or your wife to church consistently. I mean, this is one of the most foundational and basic things. So gentlemen, you should be taking your wife to church consistently, right? And so that doesn't mean once per month. That doesn't even mean twice per month. That's not consistent. Notice I use the word consistently. You should be consistently, regularly making a habit of worshiping on the Lord's day with your church family. And I can tell you, if you attend this church, you're blessed because you can be sure you're going to hear the word of God being preached it's going to go out and wash over you. So bring your family to a Bible-teaching church regularly. Second, plenty of church activities, whether it's home fellowships or whether it's Sunday school that allows the Word of God to go out, wash over your families. I know, I believe here they have home fellowships throughout the week. I know there's the Sunday school hour. And so these are opportunities. Do I need to change something? Okay. Use this one instead. Okay. So second, plenty of church activities, Sunday school, home fellowships, obviously conferences that you can bring your family or bring your wife to to hear the word of God and have it wash over. And I'll just say this, ladies, there are a lot of things that your husband could be doing right now. Amen? Ladies, there's a lot of other things your husband could be doing. There's a lot of other places your husband could be right now. But your husband chose to give up his Friday evening and some amount of his Saturday morning to come here and make this investment in his marriage. So if you haven't thanked him yet for doing that, that's something that you need to make sure you do. You need to go home tonight, look him in the eyes, and say, thank you for investing in my marriage. Thank you for giving uh, up some amount of your time to come here and learn what God's Word has to say. You can play sermons at home. I often come home, and Katie has just audio Bible on going out and washing over our children and over our home. You can attend Christian conferences like this one. And then fifth, and I'd say most obviously, if a husband is supposed to wash his wife with the word, then what do husbands need to make sure that they're doing with their wives? Come on, what? Reading the word with them. You've got to be reading the word with them. There's no way around it. I'm surprised the number of men who do not feel obligated to read the word of God with their wives when it's so clear from this verse the word supposed to sanctify and cleanse them with. And I'm not going to tell you how often that has to happen, but I should say that it's something that takes place regularly. We'll talk more about that, but just hold on to that for now. And so, gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. 
I'm not going to pry into your homes and talk about what you do or don't have in your homes. I'm not going to talk about whether you have televisions or, or movies or what movies you watch. But I'm going to ask you this. What most frequently or most commonly brings your family together? What most frequently or most commonly brings your family together? Strive for that to be the word of God. Strive for it to be the word of God that brings your family together most. The fact that husbands are called to sanctify and cleanse their wives tells us something about our responsibility, and this brings us to lesson two. Husbands love their wives by setting the standard for holiness in the home. Husbands love their wives by setting the standard for holiness in the home. Since men, or since we have the responsibility of helping with our wives' sanctification, this means we have to set the standard for holiness in the home. So gentlemen, it is not our wives' responsibility. Our wives should not have to fight us to have holier homes. Our wives should not have to fight us to make for us to be holier. This means husbands are responsible for what comes into the home, what, what influences the home. And so, gentlemen, look at me when I say this. This means you're responsible with what your family watches. You're responsible with what your family listens to. You're responsible with the way that your family jokes. And that means, you know, according to Ephesians, that there's not supposed to be any coarse jesting. If there's things that are being inappropriately said in your home, it's your responsibility to, to um, draw attention to that, bring it to an end. You're responsible with how your family dresses. You're responsible with how your family spends their time and what they do recreationally. You're responsible with the company that your family keeps. And when someone wants to get together with you, whether you allow your family to go to those people's home or whether you allow those people to come into your home, you're responsible with your family's involvement in the local church. And so if your family is not as involved in the local church as it should be, that doesn't rest on, that's not your wife's fault, that's your fault. But I'll tell you something that's very unfortunate. This is an observation. I can't say it's always true, and maybe you haven't had the same uh, observation yourself, but I don't often hear wives, or I don't often hear husbands complaining about their wives' holiness. I don't often hear husbands complaining and saying that they wish their wives were holier or they wish that their wives didn't, you know, talk this way or act this way. I don't hear husbands complaining about the things that their wives watch or listen to or say, but I do often hear wives complaining about this with their husbands, being frustrated that their husband watches that or reads this or, or talks that way. <clears throat> Similarly, <clears throat> I don't hear husbands saying, my wife won't go to church with me. But I do hear wives saying what? My husband won't go to church with me. I don't hear husbands saying my wife won't pray with me. I don't hear husbands saying my wife won't join this home fellowship with me. I don't hear husbands saying that my wife won't read the Bible with me. I don't hear husbands saying my wife won't go to Sunday school with me. But I do hear a lot of wives saying that. And the reason that it's particularly tragic is because of the call that God has on husbands' lives to be the spiritual leaders. That's why it makes it so unfortunate. It's terrible when women have to be the spiritual leader in the home wishing that their husbands were more spiritual or wishing their husbands were holier. It's, un it's terrible, but it's, it seems to be fairly common. So we just want to make sure, gentlemen, that this is not the case in our homes. Let's make sure our wives are not having to fight us to prevent us from not just allowing, but worse, bringing things into our homes that are going to negatively affect our, our uh, marriages or negatively affect our children. Now, with that said, let me briefly address the wives. You need to do your best to support the decisions that your husband makes. So if he says, I don't think we should have this in our home, I don't think that this is best for us, then you need to thank him for being a godly man who's committed to having a holy home. Don't be the person that resists 
the, the sanctification that he's trying to accomplish in your family. Be, in a, be a support to him and make his spiritual leadership easier. Take a look at verse 27 as Paul continues explaining what it looks like for husbands to love their wives. It says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. <clears throat> this is reminiscent of the previous verse in that it's discussing the sanctifying and cleansing work that Jesus does with the church. But Paul does something else with this verse that's truly profound. Notice the words that he might present her to himself. There's a tremendous truth contained here. I want to make sure we don't miss it. This verse is directly connected to verse 26. So it's saying that Christ does what he does in verse 26, sanctifying and cleansing the church, so he can get that glorious church that's described in verse 27 that doesn't have spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but is holy and without blemish. So here's the simplest way to say this. Christ gets the church that he prepares for himself. Do you see that in the verses? Christ gets the church he prepares for himself. The larger context of this is marriage. So do you see the very strong application for husbands? This brings us to lesson three. Husbands get the wives they prepare for themselves. Husbands get the wives they prepare for themselves. <clears throat> Jesus gets the church he prepares for himself. Since this is also discussing the marriage relationship, it's saying that husbands generally get the wives that they prepare for themselves. Wives respond very well to holiness. They respond very well to obedience to God's word. When husbands treat their wives forgivingly, <clears throat> when husbands treat their wives lovingly, tenderly, they usually get wives that are more what? Forgiving, loving, tender. When husbands treat their wives unforgivingly, unlovingly, cruelly, or harshly, like we talked about in the last message, they usually find themselves with wives that are less forgiving, less loving, crueler themselves, harsher themselves. This, you know, a couple times Katie has said this to me. We were, we were having an argument, and she looked at me, and she said, I wasn't like this before I married you. And she was totally serious, and I had to own it. She said, I've become worse in this area from being married to you. It is, it is, you're getting the wife you've prepared for yourself. And, and she was completely right. She was completely right. So that's the difficulty of preaching this stuff when your wife's listening. <laughs> you know, she knows these messages really, really well. It's just a wonderful thing when she quotes them back to me, you know. <clears throat> but um, it's true. And she has said that. You're getting the wife that you're, this thing that really bothers you about me. I didn't used to do this or I didn't used to do it as much. She was completely right. She wasn't shifting blame. She was telling me what was, what was a fact. So there are two really great reasons to take your wife to church, gentlemen. There are two really great reasons to read the word with her. Two really great reasons to be a strong spiritual leader in your marriage. One reason is that's one of the main commands God has for you, or one of the main responsibilities, and God's going to hold you accountable for that. But the other reason to be a strong spiritual leader is you're preparing the wife that you get for yourself. The reason is simple. If a husband is sanctifying and cleansing his wife, he's going to get what? A sanctified and a cleansed wife. Earlier I said husbands are heavily involved in their wife's sanctification, and another way to think of it is husbands are heavily involved in the wives that they get for themselves. What does it look like to have a spiritually mature wife? Think of the qualities that come with sanctification. 
or think of the quali- think of the fruit of the spirit. You're going to have a wife who's more spiritually mature, that's more loving, submissive, forgiving, respectful, gentle. As she grows in her spiritual maturity, you'll have a wife that produces more of those fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what husband would not want to see more of those fruit in his wife? Now, the opposite is also true. If you don't lead your wife well spiritually, if you don't contribute to her sanctification, you're going to get a wife who's less spiritual or less holier. If we kind of think of the spectrum, and you've got spirit on this side, you've got the flesh on this side, right? So if you move across from the spectrum and you're not helping your wife grow spiritually, then you're going to have a wife who's less spiritual or who is more fleshly. And then instead of seeing more of the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to be seeing more of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. I mean, what husband wants to see more of that from his wife? What husband wants to see more of those works in his wife's life? These aren't the works that we want to see from our wives. We're going to look at verse 28 in more detail, but briefly look at it right now. Ephesians 5.28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why would it say that, gentlemen? (laughs) Why would it say that loving your wife is loving yourself? Because a husband who loves his wife like, like these verses are describing is loving himself. He is doing himself a tremendous service. He's going to get a wonderful wife in return. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This verse applies to many areas of the Christian life, but one of the areas where it's most fitting is in a husband's relationship with his wife. We reap what we sow in marriage. If we will invest in our wives, if we will sow seeds of love and interest, if we will sow seeds of sanctification, then we're going to reap what we've sown. Now, I've listened. I've had men come into my office, and I have listened to them talk terribly uh, about their wives, but I want you to think about this for a moment. When a husband talks really bad about his wife, who is he really making look bad? Himself. More than likely, this husband has treated his wife terribly. When a man comes in and and he describes how terrible his wife is, I look at him and I say, why would your wife act this way? Have you been a spiritual leader in your home? Have you been praying with her? Have you been washing her with the word? The wife you're describing doesn't sound to me like a wife who's been sanctified and cleansed. The wife you're describing does not sound to me like a woman who has been led well spiritually, who's had a husband who prays with her and reads the word with her. I find it very hard to believe that your wife would act this way if you have been treating her the way that God's word commands. This is, this is not a spiritual wife that you're describing. This is an unspiritual wife or a fleshly wife, and I suspect she would not be acting that way if you had been obeying God's commands for husbands. Look again at verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. This brings us to lesson four. Husbands love their wives by being as concerned about them as they are about themselves. Husbands love their wives by being as concerned about them as they are about themselves. We need to be as concerned about our wives or more concerned about our wives even than we are about ourselves. If you briefly look at verse 31, it says, For this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I need to ask you to follow me for a moment so this makes sense. This is a quote of Genesis 2.24. Do you see that in Genesis, in verse 31? You can tell it's a quote. There's probably parentheses around it. It's a quote. Paul is quoting in verse 31, Genesis 2.24, which is written right after Eve was created. Now, since Adam knew that Eve came from him, Adam knew that Eve had been fashioned from him. When Adam looked at Eve, it was really like he was looking at who? Himself. When Adam loved Eve, it was really like he was loving who? Himself. When Adam took care of Eve, specifically when he took care of her body and her flesh, it was like he was taking care of his body and his flesh. And of course, he would take care of Eve if he saw her as an extension of his body because nobody ever hates what? What did the verse say? Nobody ever hates himself. Nobody hates his body and flesh. Instead, they nourish it. They cherish it. This is the language of Ephesians 5.28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Why does Paul look back to the, cre- to the fashioning of Eve? Because that is a picture or model of what we're supposed to do as husbands. In other words, the way that Adam looked at Eve and saw her as an extension of himself is the way that we as husbands are to look at our wives and see them as extensions of ourselves. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, must have had Adam and Eve in mind when he says this, which makes sense because then he ends up quoting Genesis 2.24 to take your minds to the first marriage, to take your minds to that account when the first marriage was instituted. If you look at verse 30, Paul said, we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And again, this sounds familiar, because what did Adam say right after Eve was created? She is bone of my bones, and she is flesh of my flesh. If you write in your Bibles, you can circle Ephesians 5.30, and you can write Genesis 2.23. Now, I want to connect the dots. I want to make this perfectly clear for us as husbands. Adam saw Eve as an extension of himself, as husbands. I mean, that's why God did it the way that he did. Repeatedly, in the creation account, you read from the dust of the earth, from the dust of the earth, everything's created from the dust of the earth, from the dust of the earth, from the dust of the earth, over and over again. What is the one aspect of creation that was not from the dust of the earth? Woman. Woman has the unique distinction of being the only part of creation that was not created from the dust of the earth. Instead, she was fashioned from her husband's side. Why was that? Why did God do it that way? Is it just coincidental? Did he run out of dust to use? No, the fact is he was doing something very symbolic there. That, and then that was the first marriage. And every marriage or every husband after that is to see his wife as an extension of himself, like Adam saw Eve as an extension of himself. When Adam took care of Eve, when he's nourishing and cherishing her body, he was literally nourishing and cherishing his own body, and we as husbands are expected to nourish and cherish our wives as though they are our own bodies. When we as husbands think of the way that Adam took care of Eve, a woman he literally saw as part of himself, that's how God wants us to think of our wives, as parts of ourselves or extension of ourselves. That's why it says on our wedding day, two become one. Let no man separate. We never see ourselves separate or distinct from our wives. And so, gentlemen, I want to ask you some questions. I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm very convicted by these questions myself because I know that I fall short. Are you as concerned about how your wife is doing as you are about how you're doing? 
Are you as concerned about how much sleep your wife is getting as you're concerned about how much sleep you're getting when your wife is sick? Are you as concerned about how she's doing as you are about how you're doing when you're sick? I mean, if any of you gentlemen are like me, you're probably big babies when you're sick, right? And we become very concerned about ourselves when we're sick, but are we that concerned about our wives? And I, I don't think I've addressed the single people here yet, and I'll just briefly do this. You could be listening. If you're a young lady and you're listening to this, and you're saying that this doesn't have much to do, do with you because you don't have a husband, you are completely wrong. <laughs> you are in such a fortunate position to be here as a single person because if you're a young lady, you are learning right now what your husband should be like. You are learning what God's... So if your parents brought you here, you need to thank them for bringing you here, ladies, because you are not going to walk down the aisle ignorant of what God says to husbands. You're going to evaluate, be able to evaluate every man that comes into your life, or hopefully, if you're, if you still see, if you're still, or you should see yourself under your father's authority, but through that lens that your, your father judges this man through, you'll be able to judge him through that same lens, understanding what God's word says about husbands. So when I'm talking about this and you say, well, I don't have a husband, it doesn't matter. No, what you should be saying is, now I know what to expect from my husband. Now I know what to look for. In, in a man who's interested in me. And hopefully, if he's interested in you, he'll first go talk to your father. That would be a good sign that he's an honorable or, or respectable young man. Are you as concerned about your wife overworking herself as you are about overworking yourself? I remember going over this sermon with Katie, and she said, man, these are some good questions. <laughs> That's what my wife said to me. So let me tell you what, what almost any man would be willing to do or claim that he's willing to do, and I suspect it's probably true. And then I'll tell you what God really wants us to do. Wouldn't every man be willing to jump in front of a car to save his wife? Wouldn't any man, if someone, if someone broke into the house, be willing to put himself and between his wife and danger, even be, be willing to die if that meant that his wife and his children would be safe? Gentlemen, how many times are we ever going to have to do that? How many times, how many, raise your, by a show of hands, how many men here have thrown themselves before oncoming traffic to save their wives? Okay, look around, see nobody raised. One, you did? You're the first person to ever raise their hand when I ask that, and you're right up front so everyone can see. Well, I need a drink, and everyone's on the edge of their seat. Do you want to briefly explain? Wow. And he did stop and... Wow. Okay. Uh huh. Huh. What? Did you know this? You think you know a guy, and then you. We had dinner at their house. You didn't share this with me. I was a dress for dinner. You didn't tell me. Wow, very humble. You know, we're having conversations, never shared any of this. You think you, think you know someone. Okay, so anyway. All right. Anyone ever broke into the house and you had to throw yourself between, you know, your wife and any bullets that are coming? Oh, see? No, nobody's done that, have you? <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, you know what most men are not willing to do, though, if we can be honest? Daily lay down our lives, which is what the Lord wants. That's what the Lord's asking for. It's easy to claim that you would throw yourself before that car. It's easy to claim that if someone broke into your house, you'd put yourself between your wife and any danger. That is not what the Lord is asking for. He's asking for us to daily lay down our lives for our wives, daily think about what's best for them. So what does this look like? Essentially, it looks like sacrifice. 
It looks like giving up those things that we wouldn't have to give up if we didn't have a wife. So what sort of things might you have to sacrifice? What sort of things will you have to give up? Could be sleep. Could be free time. Could be sports. Could be video games. Could be television. Could be time with friends. Basically, anything that's going to prevent you from loving your wife and caring for her with the unconditional sacrificial love that God commands. Now, if you're a young man and you're listening to this, and you say, I'm not ready yet to give up and then fill in the blank with whatever you're not willing to give up, and I mean this sincerely, there's nothing wrong with that. But you're not ready to get married yet. If there's something and you say, I'm not willing to give this up, then you're not ready to get married yet. You can't walk down the aisle until you're willing to lay that down for your wife. Like in the language of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, when I was a child, I, I played with childish things, but when I became a man, I put away those, those childish things. And you've got to be willing to sacrifice and give up these things to love your wife the way that God commands. Finally, look at verse 31. Paul says, This reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This verse is making an amazingly strong statement about the wife's position in a husband's life. Let me say that one more time. This verse, 31, is making an amazingly strong statement about the prominent position that a wife must occupy in a husband's life. And here's why. The reason a young man's father and mother are mentioned is because in the ancient world, you didn't, there was no relationship that was more supreme than that. There, there was nothing that was more important than your mother and father. I mean, often they just built an addition on their parents' on their parents' house. And so my point is, if a man is supposed to be willing to leave his father and mother for his wife, then what? There's nothing he shouldn't be willing to leave for his wife. If a man is commanded to leave even his father and mother, the point is, you don't look at that and say, oh, I'm just commanded to leave my father and mother. So there's these other things that I don't have to forfeit or sacrifice. I uh, know you're missing the point. The point is, if you are commanded to leave your father and mother, then there's nothing else that you aren't expected to leave for your wife. There should be nothing else, second only to Christ himself, that wouldn't take the back seat to your wife. And this brings us to lesson five. Part one, wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life. Wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life. Ephesians 5.25 commands husbands to love their wives. This verse, Paul says husbands should love their wives in such a way that a wife never feels threatened by anyone or anything. A wife never feels like she is second place to anything or anyone in her husband's life. This is why a wife should never feel like her husband has a relationship with anyone or with anything that's more important than his relationship with her. Here's an important point. When wives feel like second place, this is what I've noticed more often than not, it is usually not to another woman. Now, yes, men can definitely commit adultery. They can definitely be unfaithful with, with a, another woman. But more often than not, I've seen when a woman feels like second place, it is not to another woman. It is to sports. It is to television. It is to cars, poker night, alcohol, friends, work, hobbies, video games, education, even children. I love my children. I love them very, very much. The other day, Katie was talking to me about her three favorite things about me. And one of the things she mentioned was 
um, my love for our children. And I hesitate to share that to you. I don't want you to think of me more than you ought. I don't, I don't, um, but I share that because I want to make a point. It's very easy for me to love my children, um, but I need to communicate to my wife that I love her even more than them. So there are deliberate steps that I need to take to communicate to Katie and my children that she is supreme even to the children that I love fairly easily. And so that means if I come in the house and my children run to me, a number of them fairly young, you know, I'll, I'll pat them, but I need to try to push through them to reach Katie so she could perhaps be the first one that I kiss, the first one that I hug. That, and when they say, when my kids, they like, you know, if they were to ask, who do you love most? I say, mommy. We have seven children, and sometimes they wonder that. And I say, you know, mommy, mommy is the one that I love most. She's the one that I love more than any of you. And so it's important. It can be whatever it is in your life that makes your wife feel like second place, even if it's children, you need to make sure that your wife feels even more important than that. I knew two wives in California, and interestingly, they felt like second place to water skiing and horses. That's what it was. This one woman, she hated this water skiing lake that was by their house, and there was this other woman, and she just hated the horses that they had because each of these women thought that their husbands loved those things more than them. And so a husband could turn around, and this is what he could say to me. He could say, well, the Bible doesn't forbid water skiing. Or he could say, the Bible doesn't forbid having horses. That's true. But the Bible does forbid making your wife feel like second place to anything. And so even if you think the Bible has given you a certain liberty, but it has made your wife feel like second place, then the Bible has not given you that liberty because the Bible forbids anything that prevents your wife from being the supreme relationship in your life. I deliberately worded the lesson this way for a reason. I do want you to notice it says, wives must feel like the supreme relationship in the husband's life versus me saying a wife must be the supreme relationship in the husband's life. And I've performed enough marriage counseling to know what can often happen. When I say, your wife must be the supreme relationship in your life, what does a husband say? She is. She is. I mean, what husband isn't going to claim that? But if I were the lesson this way, a wife must feel, it's not about what the husband says, it's about what? How the wife feels. It's a completely different thing to say to a husband, your wife must be the supreme relationship in your life because he can say that she is. It's a completely different thing to say your wife must feel like the supreme relationship because now it's not about what the husband claims, it's about how the wife feels. And so gentlemen, ask your wife. Don't claim, don't state that she's the supreme relationship in your life. Ask her if she feels like that. Ask her if she, if she occupies that position. Picture something for a moment. A wife says, I don't feel like I'm the supreme relationship in your life. There's this other thing that's more important than me. And the husband says, okay, I'll go ahead. I'll get my priorities in order, and I'll do that less. Or I'll do that in moderation so that you don't feel like second place to that any longer. The husband who says this almost always fails for a reason that I want to discuss, and this brings us to the next part of lesson five. Lesson five, part one, wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life, part two, which can take completely removing things from the husband's life. Which can take completely removing things from the husband's life. I have just seen in too many marriage counseling sessions where a husband does not take this approach, but he claims he's going to get things in balance or moderation, 
and inevitably he ends up failing so gentlemen if your wife feels like second place to something in your life here's the hard truth it's going to be very difficult if not impossible for you to keep that in your life in any healthy or moderate way because you've already shown that you cannot have a healthy relationship with that activity or that action you've already shown that you cannot do it in moderation you've already shown that it takes priority to your wife you've already shown through your relationship with us that your wife takes a back seat to it so basically you've already shown that it has to be removed from your life completely you've shown that you can't have it in your life in balance or in moderation so it means you're going to have to remove this from your life completely you're going to have to be ruthless severe the kind of ruthlessness or severity i think i discussed in one of the recent sermons here that jesus described in, in matthew 5 where he says you got to cut off the hand you got to pluck out the eye he's describing that sort of ruthlessness or severity and that's exactly what now he didn't mean it physically obviously but there was a point that he's making that we often fail to obey and that point is that we have to be ruthless or severe with those things that threaten our, our relationships with the Lord or in this case our relationship with our wife so the correct response isn't to get that in moderation or balance the correct response is to get it out of your life completely so gentlemen let's say your wife feels like second place to something and you choose not to do what I'm saying or let me say it like this you choose not to demonstrate that sort of ruthlessness or severity that Jesus commanded here's what's more than likely going to happen you're going to make your wife some promises you're going to tell her how she's going to be the supreme relationship in your life you're going to start off well you're probably going to go a couple weeks your wife is going to be happy during that time but inevitably whatever was making your wife feel like second place is slowly going to start creeping back into your life and taking on that position of prominence that it did before that made your wife feel like it second place so too often i've been in counseling i've witnessed a wife's pain associated with some area of her husband's life and the husband acts very apologetic and he says i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i'll get this in balance or i'll get this in moderation what the husband could basically say instead because it would be a lot more honest is the husband could say things are going to change superficially for a few weeks but before long things will be right back to the way they were before actually you're going to be feeling even worse because you're going to see me fail again increasing your confidence that things will never change that would be way more honest if a husband just said that if he's committed to not removing this from his life and that's the solution right there to remove it completely put your wife in her in that place of prominence make her your queen live that out show her she's that supreme relationship in your life and then you can enjoy the blessing of an improved marriage you can enjoy the blessing of a healthier happier wife you can enjoy the blessing of a wife possibly children who see the sacrifice that you've made for them respect you that much more for it for this lesson i want to make one final point for husbands and one final point for wives husbands this means that some men will have liberties that you don't some men will have liberties that you don't here's what i mean let's say there's a gentleman he works on his car maybe a couple hours a month and his wife has no problem with that whatsoever but let's say there's another husband and he works on his car a couple hours per day how does his wife feel about that car she hates it she can't even look at it she walks past the garage and she makes sure that she doesn't even see that car out of the corner of her eye because that car is a constant reminder of how her, her husband loves that car more than he loves her well you have one husband who has a car and works on it a couple hours per month and he probably has the liberty to have that car 
Now, the other husband who's obsessed or addicted with his car, does he have that same liberty? No, he doesn't. So you can have two men where one has a liberty that another one doesn't. And so, gentlemen, you can't claim that just because one man does something that you can do it because possibly that man doesn't have the same addiction or obsession that you do. For me, I could probably water ski. I could probably have horses. I don't have really much interest in doing either of those, so I'm sure that if they were in my life, they'd probably be in, some, in, in my life in some moderate way. But I will tell you one thing. I'm ashamed of this. I'm especially ashamed sharing it in front of some number of people like this. About 12 years ago, I couldn't teach summer school. And I had all this time on my hands. And so I decided to try playing a game called World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah, I see people are just like this, like, oh, man, you know, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where were you guys back then, though? <laughs> Big help you are now. Could have saved us a lot of problems. So I started playing this game, and I'd never experienced anything like it, you know, pretty quickly. And I, didn't, I couldn't teach summer school all this time on my hands. The next thing you know, I'm, like, addicted. And very tragically, Katie's, I could see the hurt in her eyes. She, I could tell her respect for me was plummeting. And she told me, I never, and she wasn't being cruel. She said, I never imagined you like this. I ne- you've just, I've always thought of you, and she described the way she'd always thought of me and how she was seeing me at that moment. And I said, okay, okay, I'll just, I'll just play for a couple hours. And so a couple weeks go by, maybe not even a couple weeks, maybe just a couple days of only playing a couple hours per day, and then I got the whole rest of the day. But before long, guess what? Then I'm playing the whole day again. The only way to respond to World of Warcraft was to get out of my life completely. And so, I don't know, maybe some guys might have the liberty to play video games. I don't. There's no reason for me to walk down the video game aisle or look at World of Warcraft or anything like that. For me, that's just not a liberty that, that, that I should have because I don't know if I would become um, addicted again. And so the point is, gentlemen, don't look at what other men do to decide whether it's something you can do or not. Final point for wives. We've been talking about husbands loving their wives, but I want to ask you a question. Can you wives make it easier for your husband to love you? I didn't hear a lot of response. I'm going to ask this one more time. We have been talking a lot about husbands being commanded to love their wives. Ladies, can you make it easier for your husband to love you? Yes, you definitely can. Your husband is commanded to love you unconditionally, sacrificially. But let's be honest that some women can make that easier, or some women do make that easier for their husbands. I'm not making any excuses, but... You can make his life easier or you can make his life harder. You know, there's been some wives that I've seen, and I'll just be candid with you. I've thought in the back of my mind, I feel bad for that husband. It it must be unbelievably difficult for that man to try to obey God's word regarding loving a woman like that. But then, of course, you probably know some other godly women, and you think it must be easier for that husband with her. Last night, or not last night, but in the previous message, I read those verses in Proverbs about, you know, that nagging wife. Imagine how difficult it would be to love that wife that makes you want to be on the rooftop or out in the, in the wilderness. But now listen to this verse, Proverbs thirty-one, eleven: The heart of her husband safely trusts her. She will have no, or he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Ladies, strive to be that woman of Proverbs for your husband. Strive to be that, that woman of Proverbs that makes it so much easier for your husband to love you. And I'll just, and I'll say this too while we're talking about your husband sacrificing for you. Ladies, if you see your wife give something up for you, or ladies, if you see your husband give something up for you, if you see him sacrifice something that was previously an addiction or obsession, 
you need to recognize how hard that was for him. And guess what you need to do? You need to thank him. You need to encourage him. You need to hold his hand, look him in the eyes and say, I know what you just did for me. And I cannot tell you how much it means to me. Thank you for the sacrifice that you just made for me. Don't minimize it. Definitely don't belittle him and act like it wasn't a big sacrifice. Don't say something like, well, it's about time. That would be a terrible thing to say. A pre- it might not have been a sacrifice for, like my wife. It wouldn't be a sacrifice for my wife to give up World of Warcraft. But I can remember the day that I walked away from it and how my wife acted toward me and how much she told me she appreciated me doing that for her. And that meant a lot to me. That confirmed to me that I'd made the right decision. And so ladies, applaud your husband. Encourage him if you see him make that sacrifice. One final lesson I hope can encourage us as we continue discussing marriage. Lesson six, think of how Jesus loved his bride. Think of how Jesus loved his bride. When we think about husbands loving their wives and making their wives supreme, we must, we must think about Christ. We must think about how supreme Christ made his bride in his life, you and me, through the sacrifice he made. I want to finish by looking at Matthew 13, 44. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 13, 44. I'm going to tell you a whole bunch to circle and write in, this, in these two verses if you want to have your pens ready. And if you miss any of this, you can always send me an email or you can come visit me while I'm selling my books and I'll be happy to let you know what to circle. Matthew 13, 44, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells all he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Now, if you want to write and circle in your Bibles, I'll give you four things. In verse 44, circle the word treasure. And in verse 46, circle the words pearl of great price, and you can write me. Circle the word treasure, circle the words pearl of great price, and write me. In verse 44, circle the words a man. And in verse 45, circle the word merchant. And you can write Jesus. In verse 44, circle the words, sells all that he has. And in verse 46, circle the words, sold all that he had. And write Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Let me say that one more time. In verse 44, circle the words, sells all he has. In verse 46, circle the words, sold all he had. And write Philippians 2, 7 and 8, which says, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He sold all that he had. He gave up all that he had. Verse 44, circle the words, buys that field. And in verse 46, circle the words, bought it. And you can write redeemed. Now, both of these parables are about a man who viewed something as so valuable or he viewed something as so supreme that he was willing to give up everything he had to purchase it or to redeem it. And that's what Christ did with us. That's what Christ did with you. In verse 44, notice, Jesus didn't really care about the field. This is interesting. Follow me. He didn't care about the field he bought. Why did he want the field? He wanted the field because of the treasure that came with it, which is why Christ redeemed the world. And he didn't care about the earth. 
He cared about the field, or he didn't care about the field. He came with the treasure that came with it. You and me, he purchased the field, or he redeemed the, redeemed the world because of what came with the field, or came with the world, which is us. Spurgeon said, Jesus, at the utmost cost to himself, he bought the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Now, I know that I'm in the minority regarding the interpretation of these parables. I know that many others, even if not most other commentators, um, disagree with this interpretation that I hold, and we're the merchant who found the treasure. And the treasure is the gospel, or the treasure is salvation, the kingdom of God, and we give up everything to buy it. And I'll tell you why I disagree with that view. First, it makes us the initiators. Did you go and find Christ, or did Christ come and find you? Is it all about what you went and did for Christ? Is it all about what you gave up for him? That you purchased or redeemed him? Or is it about what Christ did for you and what he gave up for you and that he purchased you back from sin and death? That he redeemed you? I mean, think of Romans 3.11. There's none who seeks after God. In, in, Luke, in Luke 15, does the coin get up and roll back and find its master? Does the sheep wander back? No, the initiator is the shepherd. Christ is the initiator. He's the one who goes and finds or seeks and finds, not the other way around. Second, this interpretation allows us, allows Christ to be the hero. Don't, don't make yourself the hero of stories in the Bible. It is not about what you've done. It is about what Christ has done for you. We don't sell everything. We didn't give up everything for Christ. It's what he did for us. Maybe the strongest reason that I hold to this interpretation is this. The Old Testament prefigures or it foreshadows New Testament truths or realities. Many of the accounts or stories that you see in the Old Testament, they're prefiguring or they're foreshadowing New Testament realities or truths. So let me get you to think about something. Can you imagine a man in the Old Testament who was willing to buy a field? He didn't really care about the field. He cared about the treasure, or to be more specific, the bride that came with that field. Who am I talking about? What book of the Bible am I talking about? Ruth. Ruth is a story about a man, Boaz, who wanted a field. He didn't care about the field. He just wanted that treasure that came with that field, which was his bride. That story in the book of Ruth, Christ is the kinsman redeemer. You're not Boaz, and Christ is not Ruth. Christ is Boaz, and you are Ruth. It's what Christ has done for you in redeeming or purchasing you. Boaz wanted that field because of the treasure that came with it. And I mention all this to you because you could be struggling with your worth in your marriage. You could be struggling with, with your value or how you view yourself. Maybe you feel like you're not valuable. Maybe you feel like you have nothing to offer. I mean, that is what the devil wants us to believe. But the truth is, you are valuable enough to the Lord. The Lord viewed you highly enough that he was willing to see you as that pearl of great price that he would die for to redeem. That's how much Christ loved you. That's how valuable you are to him. In verse 44, notice the word joy. You're the treasure Jesus found, and finding you brought him joy. I mean, think of the language in Luke 15, that one sinner, you would think it would take hundreds or thousands or perhaps millions of sinners to bring joy to the Father, but it says there's more joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. That's the sort of joy. And what's really interesting is it's so much joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how supreme he made you 
in his life that he was willing to go to the cross joyfully to redeem you back from sin and death. So I want to conclude by saying this. Be encouraged by this great love that Christ has for you. Be encouraged that he saw you valuable enough to give up everything for you. And then, gentlemen, let's strive to love our wives and make them supreme like Christ did with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that Christ viewed us. We thank you for what he was willing to give up for us. We recognize that it's not anything in us that made us valuable, but that you are love. And as a God of love, you set you find objects for your love. You set your love on us. And because of that, Christ was willing to die for us and redeem us back from sin and death. We thank you so much for that, Father. And I pray it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't be a reality that, that has no effect on us, but would be a reality that affects us and moves us, especially as husbands, to love our wives with that same love. And I pray that through the power of the gospel, that that's something that we can do. We couldn't do it ourselves, Lord. We fail regularly, daily. All of us do, myself included. So we pray for that strength, and only you can provide for us to be the husbands that can be pleasing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Scott, thank you, brother, for a lot of, a lot of good teaching tonight. You guys encouraged? Amen. Amen. So listen, folks, tomorrow, 730, we start at eight o'clock right on the nose. But at 730, I guess the coffee um, stand will be open. So if you'd like to come, um, feel free. If you like coffee like I do, I will uh, be hovering around in there. So uh, we'll, we'll open up at, I'm sure people will be here before then, but I know that will be open by 7.30, and then we'll start at 8 o'clock. Then we have three sessions tomorrow morning. We'll stop at 12 o'clock, and we'll have about a half an hour. So please write down your questions for Scott, and uh, looking forward to it. And me too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I will all join you, brother. Let's pray again. Close our time. Father, we thank you again. We've all been challenged, each and every one of us. And I pray as Scott start off, Pastor Scott start off this sermon this evening series by reminding us that we need to look at ourselves first and foremost. And secondly, uh, so that we can see clearly to see the speck in our brother's eyes. Lord, help us to take that to heart. I pray that all of us would look first and foremost to ourselves where we need to grow and change and that you would just be gracious to us. And I pray that we would repent, as he also described this evening, and fully getting rid of these things, Lord, in our lives, things that would would trap us, would entangle us, and keep us from running this race with endurance. Thank you so much for our spouses. And I pray for these young people who desire to be married, Lord. I pray for them that they would marry well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, good night, folks.